The following Dharma talk was given at Common Ground Meditation Center in Minneapolis, Minnesota. The speaker is Mark Nunberg, guiding teacher at Common Ground. Many of you are already receiving the Buddhist Studies email, so you got the email this afternoon. Even if you haven't seen it, it's there. If you've been on the email list, you got that email. And it's just reminding folks that there are some good resources on loving kindness up on our webpage, which is just BuddhistStudies.CommonGroundMeditation.org, and that link is in the email. But even if you are currently not on the email, like if this is your first Buddhist Studies class, you can just go to Buddhist Studies, all one word, dot CommonGroundMeditation.org, and what will show up first or the resources for this course. So there's maybe five articles that if you want, you can download, print up. There's some talks, the previous two courses on loving kindness, the talks and guided meditations are there. Caleb's here tonight, so he's recording, so that what happened tonight will be up there in a week or so. So the idea is just to dig in. Some of you have more time, some of you less time. Do it, you know, Use the time you have to practice and study. Because the the great thing about the universe we live in, it's lawful. If you contemplate aversion and non-aversion, love and non-love, you can't help but learn. You know, whether you do it formally in a structured way, sitting down in a quiet space, your kids and cell phone in another room, pets in other rooms, and just within that own psychic, our own psychic space, we investigate, or we take it on the road in our daily life where we're interacting with people. But either way, we'll learn a lot. And ideally, we're practicing both ways, in isolation, so that we're working within our own heart and mind. It's just so interesting how in those more private moments, in some ways we can justify behaviors that we would never want anybody to see us acting out in the world, right? The kind of meanness we can have toward ourselves. Some of you have heard me describe this particular moment in meditation in the middle of a long retreat, three-month retreat. And uh, I was doing walking meditation and my mind was wandering and I was bringing it back and it was wandering and bringing it back and it wandered... And I just got so upset that this huge wave of frustration, anger just arose. But it just so happens that right with the arising of, and it was a big movement of anger, frustration, self-judgment, right with it was awareness, right? Because mindfulness had some continuity because I was in the middle of a long retreat. So there was that very unpleasant emotion of anger, frustration, self-hatred, and a knowing of it. And being angry is not the same as knowing there is anger. Right? It's different when <clears throat> there's that balanced, clear awareness, oh, self-hatred is like this. In fact, you'll see, if you practice this, you'll see that's the proximate cause for compassion to arise. And because my mind was pretty steady and sensitive, then the next moment, so the first moment was wandering mind. And it had some history, right? It had been wandering and come back wandering. And then the next moment was a, a wave of self-hatred with awareness, right? The mind recognizing that. And then that breaking the heart wide open. So the next moment was, like in my life, probably the most powerful, clear experience of compassion, right? I needed the self-hatred, right, and mindfulness in order to realize the depth and nimbleness and uh, liberating effect of compassion. It's like the whole world opened up. Everything was connected and it was all love. And I didn't do it. It's like I didn't... bring that thought or feeling or love to mind. It was 
the natural result of seeing the, it's like when awareness, when wisdom sees suffering, like self-hatred arise, then compassion follows because that's what opens the door of compassion is actually being aware, intimate, unafraid to see pain and suffering for what it is. So it's pretty amazing, right? Because, you know, it seems like we're suffering all the time. It's pretty amazing to think that any moment of self-hatred, any moment of suffering could be the moment, the doorway into the love we've been looking for for a long time, but just in all the wrong places. Like shaking our partners, why don't you love me the way that I want you to love me? As if that's, you know, that's the cause that will give us what we want. You know, the problem is here and the resolution is here. And we always think it's out there somewhere else. Which is endlessly frustrating. So I'm just saying that to uh, inspire us to practice both formally during the next couple of weeks and for the rest of our lives, but also informally <laughs> as we go about our days. Like there's, there's really no moment between now and whenever you think you've done enough. There's no moment that we can't find a way to practice. And you know the image about love or metta, um, usually translated as loving kindness, but really it's just that basic friendliness or that basic goodness of the heart. And the way it's talked about in the tradition is that that quality of the heart knows how to show up. That's its characteristic. So when we don't know how to be in a moment, that's not metta. Right? Or we don't know how to be, but we're okay with that. That's metta. <laughs> you know. So metta, like the image is, a water can fill any vessel, no matter how weird the shape is. Water doesn't have any problem knowing how to fill that space. And so when the mind or heart is grounded in a more authentic, non-aversion, non-fear, or what we call metta, karuna is compassion, mudita is appreciative joy, upeka is um, equanimity. When it's grounded in that, then the reason there are four qualities, and you know, it could be 400 qualities, but just to keep it simple, there are four qualities, is really, is pointing to the fact that it knows how to show up. So like, if it's a really difficult moment, then it shows up as compassion. And if it's a really beautiful moment, it shows up as appreciative joy. And if it's a more ordinary moment, it shows up as basic friendliness, basic goodness. And if it's a really ambiguous moment or confusing moment, it will show up as equanimity. But one way or another, it will find a way to fill the space. It will find a way to show up and be intimate. That's the characteristic. So then that way, no matter what's going on in our life, it, it just begs the question, well, how might love, how might this potential we all have, we're walking around with it, this potential to be right here in the moment, intimate, connecting, receptive, and engaged, and responsive, so not just passively receptive, but receiving and giving, right? There's the basic quality of generosity and all these qualities of the heart, it's a movement of both receptivity and engagement and responding appropriately to the moment. And that that nimbleness or that naturalness is related to the what they're called. These four qualities of the heart are called immeasurables. Because it's, like I said earlier, it's when aversion goes away, what's left is nature not tainted by aversion. And nature is innumerable, like there's no 
Like where does nature begin and end? What's in nature and what's not nature? No, no, no. It's just all nature. So when we're in those moments where the compassion or the joy or the basic friendliness is real and authentic and not staged or not like I should be kind to this person, it will have that immeasurable quality like it's just nature doing it. It's not like I'm trying to be a really nice person. If, if anything, those, that sense of I'm trying to be a nice person is diminishing the naturalness and the power and the lightness of the love. It doesn't contribute to it, the thought that I should be kind or I should be compassionate. And you see, it changes then how we practice because normally when we you know, hear about or feel inspired by loving kindness, it's like, oh yeah, I want to do that. I want to be that. How can I be that more? But this way of practicing, it may begin there, but then because we have some, at least information now, and then maybe some insight, some experience from our own lives, then it's a lot about trusting and about getting some skill about opening that door of love, of compassion. Like, what do I need to bring to mind? What do I need to pay attention to in this moment? that will remind the mind of this potential of being fully present, fully connecting, responding in this immeasurable, not limited state, right? Not fear limits the mind, greed limits the mind, aversion limits the mind. But when those qualities of mind have been seen and abandoned, then what's limiting it? So there's this immeasurable or boundless quality. And that's a nice like barometer for love. Like, is it bound up in any way? Then it's maybe look like love, but it maybe it's more attachment or desire. Or maybe it's sentimental and superficial. But when it has that breadth and depth, you know, being unbounded and immeasurable has more of that flavor. It also has that anatta, anatta flavor, like not self, it's not personal. So in other traditions like Christianity or whatever, they might say what's God's love, divine love. So we sometimes use that word metta instead of love because, you know, love is sort of a corrupted term, but we can reinvent it or refresh it you know, so when we're talking about kindness or love or compassion, like I said earlier, it's not about a particular person. It just so happens that it's being expressed with this particular person that I'm seeing right here. But it may look or feel differently as I bring other people to mind or move through the day. But the basic, unbounded, nimble, way of connecting, being willing to be touched, being willing to be close, willing to respond, undefended, the mind not bound up with boundaries. Who's in, who's out, or hierarchical senses. This person, they get a lot of love, this person a little less love, this person not not any love at all because they scare me or because I I've decided they're bad because they look different than me or they're whatever. But when we have, when the heart's really nimble in this way, even if somebody actually is dangerous and a threat and we need to get away from them, we don't have to hate them, right? Because that nimble, immeasurable heart will realize, like even as we're running away from them because they might want to hurt us or rob us or whatever, the heart understands that, yeah, I need to get away and I care about my this life and I'm going to take care of this life and it can't be easy being that person who wants to do me harm. That would not be a good mind or heart to have to inhabit right now. 
may you be well. And you becoming well and you becoming free from suffering is only going to be the benefit for the benefit of all other beings. Because when you're in this contracted and obviously suffering state, you're no good for yourself and you're definitely no good for anybody else. So may you be well. Why would we actually, with wisdom in our minds, why would we feel compelled to hate somebody? Like when we look at ill will in our minds toward politicians, toward the evildoers who run corporations, or whatever we might, you know, whoever we might have ill will for, when we really look at it, we should just take a, you know, look at it in a practical, pragmatic way. Like, what good is this? There's a very powerful story that Jack Cornfield tells of uh, when he was in Thailand and uh, working in, I don't know what he was doing in the refugee camps, but remember, you might remember in the early, late 70s and early 80s, it was a big deal of a lot of people leaving Laos and Cambodia crossing the border. Many of them had lost many, many members of their family. Millions were killed at the, in the 70s there. And, uh, and uh, Maha Gosananda, this very famous, well-known uh, Cambodian Buddhist monk, had made it across. And he was teaching the thousands and tens of thousands of people um, in these camps. A lot of Westerners went, some of my people that I were, was in college with went to these camps to help out, sort of a thing that people would do to help. And uh, in any case, Jack Hornfield, I don't know if he was a monk at the time, but anyway, he uh, was there. And uh, Maha Gosananda would just have these people, they, they wanted to build a camp, and they had spies, the Khmer Rouge from Cambodia had spies in these refugee camps and across the border in Thailand. And the word had gone out that anybody who supports the building of these camps, you know, they're going to be killed and any relatives still in the country will be harmed. And still people gathered. And they just chanted over and over again this very famous phrase from the Dhammapada, this collection of verses from the Buddhist teachings. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone is healed. This is an ancient and eternal law. And people would just, he would just chant it and then eventually everyone else was chanting it with them and crying. And Because you can imagine how easy it would be to be afraid and to be hateful of hate, having lost friends and relatives and even now having made it out of the country being afraid. And we could do the same. Now, our situation isn't nearly as dire, but we could do the same. I mean, we could literally, in our mind, be chanting or repeating that basic teaching. Hatred never ceases by hatred. Hatred never adds anything. Ill will, now remember, ill will includes boredom and fear and irritation and in patience, so we could be chanting this on the freeway. Ill will never ceases through ill will, but by love alone is healed. This is the ancient and eternal truth. This is the law. Like This is a law that is never broken. We can challenge each other, like in these two weeks, you know, as we're more formally reflecting on this, let's just see, can we actually find a place where ill will, frustration, impatience... Now, it's totally understandable that these qualities are going to arise in our mind. So I'm not... There's no reason to be have ill will for the ill will that arises in our mind. But when it does arise to really see has it any function whatsoever? Does it contribute anything? 
Because a lot of times, and many of you have heard this, we ask, sometimes people ask out loud in the group, you know, if we're not angry, we're not going to do anything about racial injustice, or we're not going to do anything about global warming or the other inequities in our society. Don't we need anger to affect change in our lives, in our societies, in the world? Isn't it true? And this is what we need to check out in a very direct and pragmatic way. Can we find examples where ill will, anger, throwing somebody out of our heart, actually contributes to the well-being of beings. Sets something good in motion. And we'll have more time next week to talk, but to uh, really look at all the little and big ways we rationalize ill will. I don't remember why, but we were listening, Wynn and I were listening to something today. Oh, Mitch McConnell was being interviewed on Minnesota Public, not on Minnesota Public Radio, but he was being interv- it was being played on the public radio. And he was, uh, he comes from a coal state, and so he's always been pro coal. And then it brought to mind the Koch brothers, Koch, is that who said? Koch brothers, thanks. Koch brothers. And, uh, you know, it's just easy to to sort of bring certain people or certain institutions to mind and assume that it's like yeah there's just some force that needs to be moved stopped right like people who have a lot of money and using that money to perpetuate their self-interests and then just it's just interesting to see like can that, you know, in a way, hating or judging people like that is an excuse for non-action, I find. It's like we think that judging them as being bad, like I've done something productive, and so I don't really have to do anything. You know, all those Southerners who still have racism, you know, we can shake our head about those deep south states or something like that and somehow it takes us, you know, like we're not responsible for looking deeply in our heart about what's, you know, what's there, what hasn't been seen yet. And the thing about when we we let the heart be touched by the injustices and the unskillful actions and the people using their wealth for their own self-interest, we want to let it in, right? That's what love allows. Hate keeps it out because we we tell ourselves something like they're bad. And then we we don't have to engage and respond and act. The way action comes is we let we let the heart be touched. We have to feel that touch. We have to be moved. The heart has to be moved. And this isn't self. This is nature. It's just like uh, the law, the way it works. Isn't it, wouldn't it be true, you know, if, if we saw, and this is, this is what motivates so many saintly people, is that they didn't want to, but they just saw too much and they couldn't help but use their life, they couldn't help but respond. And their life has basically these twists and turns of them responding. And then that response leads to something and then that's a little bit more information and then they respond and and they go forward in life. So this is our kind of call to action these two weeks and then from there on is just to take, uh, and I think it, even though it's not as juicy to talk about aversion and non-aversion, that non-hate, non-aversion is in a way a more 
direct and immediate way into the world of love, compassion, appreciative joy, equanimity. To really get tuned in to the all the different ways we close the heart down, that we throw people out of our heart, feel like it's not safe, that we don't know how to include. We don't know how to care. We're not not wanting to respond, have to respond. And just to see, in a way that feels safe, because you want to build on success, what today, this hour, what can I include that my heart would otherwise want to be averse to or afraid of or close itself off to? What can I include? Who can I include? Who can I be a little closer to? What can I be a little closer to? And just start to see the different movements. And then to notice, like, is that a movement of compassion or basic friendliness? Or is that a movement of joy? Is the quality of love expressed now as equanimity, like a willingness in ambiguous situations, a willingness to stay right in the middle, knowing that I don't know how to respond yet? So I need to be equanimous because I don't have enough clarity yet. And so in that place of equanimity, I care enough, I love enough to be willing to be sensitive until, a, there's a, until nature moves through me, right? And I stand up and say something or I sit down and listen or I you know, send some money or clean the bathroom. Or, but one way or another, we're moved to respond to the life situation as it is. And, you know, the, we always think it has to be big. But, you know, it couldn't be very s- simple and small. Or it has to be about other people suffering. There's a story in the tradition about some robbers, some thugs in some place. And they felt the need to have to show the community that they mean business and that people should just basically give them what they want. And the thing they could do that would prove that is kill one of the monks, right? Because if you're willing to kill a monk, like in a Buddhist context, that would be obscene. Like, you don't do that. And so if they killed a monk, then people would really respect them and basically do, they wouldn't have to like kill anymore or that people would just give them their money because, my God, they killed a monk. So they went to the elder monk, the, the teacher monk, and they said, we need to kill one of you, um, but we don't really care who it is, so you can choose. And uh, so that there's the abbot, and there's a really old monk, and then there's a monk that nobody liked, you know, and there's a monk that was really sick, um, and maybe a few others. And then the question is like, well, who does the chief monk choose? You know, and being all politically correct, we go, well, you wouldn't choose the one you hate or don't like or that irritates you because, you know, that would be bad. I just finished reading a book. Uh, Harriet McBride, I think, wrote it. I think that's how she says her last name. But she was someone... um, who has used a wheelchair her whole life and has a very, very significant disability. She's dead now. Um, and was quite well known. She had a, there was a wonderful article that was published in the New York Times Magazine about her interactions with Peter Singer, a famous philosopher, some of you might know, who's like the nth degree of a utilitarian philosopher. And, and he's very strong in animal rights. And, um, but he's also, he's really controversial because he's raised questions about uh, children who are born with serious disabilities that are going to f- require a lot of care throughout their life and that that money could be better spent on, you know, just benefiting the lives of many people like children who don't have enough food, good nutrition, or who have diseases that could be easily fixed with some medicine that's readily available but there's no money and yet we'd spend 
you know, this money to to do this. I, I was talking to a friend of mine, and he has some wealthy relatives that started this uh, this very amazing place uh, for children with autism, and they just they're very wealthy. These people, and so this this uh, institution just has the best resources. And children might be there for, these are people um, with pretty severe um, autism. And they may be there for a few years and just be able to speak a few more sentences than they would otherwise not having been at that place. And so Peter Singer is, you know, really wants to create rules or laws that would allow parents to choose to kill a child with you know, a lot of disabilities or really disabled would need a lot of care, a lot of expensive care through their life. And so he had this really interesting conversation with this woman, Harriet McBride, who's this uh, very, you know, had a lot of limitations in terms of mobility and other health, serious health concerns. But she was, she's a very charming and uh, sharp lawyer and uh, I forget where they met but anyway he invited her to Princeton to have this conversation and she accepted and a lot of the people in the disability rights community and she was a big leader in that community thought like this guy's the evil doer he's he's the evil doer and you shouldn't even have a conversation with them and uh, this you can probably find this article online because it was in the New York Times maybe about 15 years ago. And it's a chapter in her book and I can't remember the title of her book right now. Um, But these people who uh, we have every reason to feel threatened by or to want to throw out of our heart. But when you start to connect with them, you realize they're a human being. And their idea to you may be really wrong, the ideas that they advocate, but that they're human being. And maybe from their perspective, what they're thinking or whatever makes sense. And it doesn't mean you don't try to stop them or change them, but you don't throw them out of your heart. And it was just so interesting to see her like liking this guy that she really wanted to hate. And she didn't, you know, it wasn't that he's a perfect guy or, but just that that was her nature. She was just like a really lovely human being. And uh, yeah, although she didn't have too many nice words for um, Jerry Lewis. She protested for many years the muscular dystrophy. Was that what he had the telethon for? And, uh, but she probably didn't have any nice words for him because she, I don't think she ever met him. It would, that would have been an interesting conversation between her and him as well, but another story. Hmm? Oh, I don't think there's an end to the story, except that <laughs> that it, it was that conundrum, like there's nobody to pick. That That's what he came to. Like initially he thought, well, I should just pick myself. You know, first of the first thought, of course, is the person that irritates you. And then the, then generally the utilitarian point of view comes to mind. Sorry, I didn't finish the story, right? It's like, oh, okay, we'll get rid of either the sick one or the old one. Who has the greatest probability for the greatest number of, you know, pleasant days? And we'll get the other guy, kill the other guy. And then, oh, no, I should take myself. That would be the noble thing to do. But the, I think the, the point of the story is that there's nobody that you can choose. So maybe it's random, but not to think that some, like that idea that one life is better than another life. Because that's the beginning, you know, that's the beginning of aversion. This is a story I've told before, so maybe many of you have heard it, but Andy Olensky, I'll make it short because I know a lot of you have heard it, uh, a well-known teacher. And there was a rabbit skunk um, that had gotten in his house and then they got it out. And his son, little son, his young son, brought, got his bow and arrow and Andy 
big guy running around in his boxer shorts on Saturday morning out in his backyard wanted to kill the skunk so that it wouldn't bite at somebody else's dog. They were in a place with a lot of homes and a lot of pets. But he found, and he was somebody who's been really looking at his mind for a long time, that he couldn't do what seemed like the right thing to do without hate in his mind. Now, even though it was probably the right thing to do, there was hate in the mind. And so sometimes we may be in a situation where we do need to kill a being or harm somebody. And we have to, Kamala and I, Kamala Masters, the woman I was teaching with out at IMS uh, this last week, and a few other people, we were talking about this in terms of uh, roaches. <laughs> we were talking about Hawaii and roaches, and IMS had a roach problem, and we were talking about bugs and and about killing bugs. And Kamala just sort of, Kamala summed it up in a really, I thought, just right way. Yeah, sometimes we will end up killing. And in that moment, in a very generous way, we receive the karma of that killing. Right? We don't deny it. We don't pretend that we're not receiving the fruit of that action of hatred or killing. We receive it in full awareness. I'm willing, like if your house gets termites and for whatever reason you can't afford to just let them eat the house. (laughs) And so you hire someone to bomb it with the fumes, whatever that they do. Then the wise thing to do is to realize that I consciously take on whatever karma that is. And we won't necessarily know, obviously, what that is. But whatever that is, that fear, that hate, that wanting those bugs to go away, whatever that um, ongoing effect is in the mind stream, I accept that. I accept that. And the same thing with all the ways that we participate, whether it's eating meat or squashing a mosquito, you're in the tent, you're exhausted, you've been, you hiked. 15 miles with a 50-pound backpack. You're not going to catch that mosquito and get it outside. You put your arm out, it lands, and you kill it. You want to do that in awareness if you're going to do it. Because there's even the effect on our heart, and this is for us to check out on our own, not to just believe blindly. But to be unaware of the karma is its own karma. So given that we live in the world where we are going to cause harm, we should be really aware of it. That's why like when we end up saying something to our partner, I find this hard to do, you know, when we act out our own negativity, our own hurtness, and in a way that hurts another person, then we should acknowledge it or confess it because we want to feel the karmic effect of having been harmful. So it doesn't creep up on us later. We want to feel it right now and you know in that moment. Let me receive. You could even use that when you you're careless around a spider and you squash it. You're pretending to get it outside, but you're not really being careful. <laughs> and there it goes. Or like I noticed with me, it's when I'm vacuuming, right? Because you know, when I'm vacuuming, and I know where the spiders reside, and I can go slowly and let, give them a chance to get out of the way, but I can pretend, you know, or how much light I have on when I'm vacuuming. <laughs> like, do you really want to see those smaller ones? <laughs> so, to do these things in the full light of awareness. So, like, we receive it so that, because that's a kind of compassion to receive like the poignancy of living in a world where we do cause harm and we do kill and are we going to receive that and really and then let it change who we are because we become different when we let it in we become a different person as we move forward so i'll leave it here and we'll pick it up next week but we have about 10 minutes it'd be nice to hear some examples about um 
looking at those places where we have boundaries, where we choose to be unaware of harming, or we justify aversion, we justify hatred, it seems to make sense. So it would be nice to hear from people, of course, any questions you might have. So what comes to mind about love and aversion? First, Leela, and we have our mic here. If people don't mind, it just makes it easier for everyone to hear. Make sure you point it right at your mouth. Right behind you, Jim. I just think we need to be so careful about forgiveness. Um, I have a sister who walks with anger. And I assumed that one of her daughters disappeared off the face of the earth because her mother was so full of anger and her her mother and the daughter never did anything right, quote-unquote. So I, in all my wisdom, said to this sister when she came to see me, I forgive you for all the hurt that you've caused Donna. And she said, fuck you. And I got the message. I mean... You know, there was all kinds of superiority in me. There was all kinds of, you did it all wrong. And that was the most, one of the most important hurtful lessons. Hurtful, I hurt. I mean, so I have never felt that I needed to forgive anybody because they're, they're doing what they do. And, how many times have I been unable to be big enough to see what is the best thing to do or whatever? So being forgiving is something that I really have to think about. Yeah. I'm not sure it's the best. It, it does, it, it's, 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 a, it's a non-solution because the solution is here. Yeah. So you could talk about it instead of forgiving, you know, that word, again, it gets misused. It's really about like, I'm not going to hold resentment towards you or judgment to you. So that when I forgive you, it's like, I'm not going to keep you separate from me anymore. I'm not going to keep that boundary up anymore, that you you were bad or you harmed me. I think what I feel is I have to forgive myself for not being big enough to see that she is where she is. Thanks so much for sharing that. I think somebody had a hand up over here. Yeah, Jane, and then. It's been a few years now, but I always think of um, a time, you know, when you're talking about um, are there any situations where anger, you know, and um, ill will does some good. And I just, you know, the work I do, I'm a lawyer and um, I work on environmental issues and I've there's, you know, one one time in particular that sticks in my mind, but there have been other times like this, too, where when I've gotten angry, you know, change has happened. And I can say, I, can, I could tell you specifically the one that I'm thinking about, um, the city of Hibbing, you know, um, really undertook uh, um, a, a more detailed and extensive um, mercury control project with our new power plant, I mean, with our new um, wastewater treatment plant, really because I got really angry on the telephone with somebody. And so I have, I'm just like, I'm, yeah. I've been curious about that ever since. Um, and when the, after that happened, I really didn't, I just hated it. I hated it that I had, that it was anger that had, you know, seem to have brought that about. It just didn't seem right to me. And I'm still, you know, all these years later, I'm still really sort of curious about it. And the the question, like, and you can sort of deconstruct it this week and uh, if there's time, bring it up again next week as you reflect deeply. But sometimes there's anger, but the anger that we're expressing uh, is actually, um, it's like, the holding back, let's say fear was holding us back, like from speaking the truth. Um, like we didn't want to, you know, there's this sort of, we don't want to make people uncomfortable. 
or this person is just a cog in this bigger system and they're not really evil but they're working for this place and they don't deserve uh, me making them really uncomfortable to affect this change. So we're holding back because we, we may not realize it consciously but I don't really want to be part of this messy interaction. So we might then hold back, hold back until the gates can't hold it and then we speak up. But that may be a positive correction. As imperfect as it is, and there might actually be real anger there, but it might be healthier than somebody holding back for the wrong reasons. Do you know what I mean? So we have to be a little careful just because the interaction was imperfect it might have been more perfect than the non-interaction that you, like, not engaging. And so we want to move in the right direction, <laughs> but we have to let go of this idea of perfection um, in terms of when we are quiet and when we speak up. Is that time for maybe one or maybe two? Caleb and then Judy? Well, I was just uh, something to kind of think about in that that uh, Jane's example is I think the element of judgment, judgmentalism with the anger is what's what's really the detriment the most detrimental part of it if If you're angry without judgment of someone, it's a little different than a lot of anger with a lot of judgment. Yeah, and we probably, I mean, for the purposes of this class, when we say anger, it means our heart is closed to that person, right? So there is judgment. But So what you're saying, it's okay to be forceful, or it's okay to be loud, or it's okay to speak in ways that might cause that person to feel pain, that's not anger necessarily, right? Just because somebody's really hurt by our words doesn't mean we're angry. It just means that those words hurt. But sometimes people need to hurt that makes something positive happen. The way we know there's anger is have we thrown the person out of our heart? Have we kind of congealed an idea of them and made them less than bad or something like that, like so that that the, we've reinforced a sense of separation. Mm-hmm. That's the that's the thing, and we can be powerfully strong and assertive without being angry. I mean, as I'm using the word angry, and we can't tell by how somebody looks on the surface. We can tell in our own heart whether we're angry, but we don't always know whether somebody else where they're at. Here's a, here's a funny story to end the evening. And I'm not, you know, I'm not justifying this. But anyway, Larry Rosenberg, a well-known uh, teacher in this tradition, was practicing at this uh, beautiful monastery that I've also practiced at in Thailand, Ajahn Mahabua's monastery, a very well-known Buddhist monk who's now dead. But anyway, when Larry was there, uh, Ajahn Mahabur was really laying into one of the monks. He was just yelling. And uh, evidently he had placed a cup too close to the edge of a table. And uh, so Ajahn Mahabur was just laying into him. And then in the middle of this tirade, tirade, anyway, um, Ajahn Mahabur turns to the translator and says, tell him, meaning Larry, that I'm I'm yelling at the defilements, not the person. <laughs> and, then he, and then he went back. So I don't know, and I'm not, I'm not saying that you know when spiritual authorities scream at us. I I was with another teacher, uh, who very well known teacher, who could express a lot of anger. This is a kind of a. Uh, famous Indian guru teacher back in the 80s, and he could express real anger at times. (laughs) 
And, uh, but I, and I look carefully and I, I had an open mind, like what was going on in his mind? Like, was he being unskillful or was he being skillful? And I don't know, even to this day. But we can know. That's the important thing. Whether we're throwing somebody out of our heart. And some of you who are parents probably have several examples of really laying down the law and that line between hating the child and throwing them out of our heart and giving them medicine in a beautiful way. I noticed this as a school teacher that sometimes, and it wasn't, it wasn't often, but sometimes when I was really forceful, but clean, no real aversion, it was a powerful drug. I felt really high, like in a good way, after like a lot of energy letting that um, sort of energy move through you, doing the thing that needed to be done, saying the thing that needed to be said. I'm sure some activists in the room have experienced that. And in the same way, when we're not in a clean place, the after effect doesn't feel good. So we may not notice in the moment, but if we're reflective an hour or so later or the next day and really honest and really cultivate some calm so we can be sensitive, we might notice what's still reverberating and maybe it doesn't feel so good. In the same way that, you know, the next day after an interaction with my wife, I'll know whether it felt clean or not. You know, oh, that didn't feel very good. Not always. Sometimes it felt okay. <laughs> Sometimes we've really gone at it. And I think, I'm speaking for myself, but I think probably true for women, it felt really clean afterwards. Right? Sometimes it's like there's a lot of energy. Like, yeah, that, that was actually enlivening to kind of let that stuff move a little bit. And, and we weren't actually throwing each other out of our hearts. We were just, things were moving. Things were being said that need to be said. And that's why it feels so alive now, not dead. So may that be so, that way. <laughs> and thanks for the comments. We'll have more time next week for discussion. So learn as much as you can this week and we'll share it next week together. So let's just take a few seconds, let go of the words. This talk, like all programs at Common Ground, is offered freely in the spirit of generosity. To learn more about Common Ground and its programs, or if you would like to donate, please visit our website, www.commongroundmeditation.org.